All right, I want to begin with a couple questions about the fractal presentation real quick, but ones that I just jotted down. And then I promise we will try and get to as many of, the, of these other ones as we possibly can. Uh, the layer upon layer, does that mean that the formula changed? So if you were to take one of those numbers as you zoom in, zoom in, zoom in, grab that number, has the formula changed or does the formula just create? So if you were to represent that number in the formula, would the formula be exactly what it was at the beginning when you started that or would it be a multiplication of those numbers? So it would be, what was the formula? Give me the first part of the formula, Zn? Z squared plus C. Z squared plus C. So would it be like Z squared plus C to the ninth power if you zoom right in? Is that formula multiplying as well? No, the, formulas, the formula stays the same. Okay. What, what you're doing when you zoom in is you're, you're, you're looking at a narrower range of numbers that you're running through that formula. Okay, so in the original, you have to graph the x-axis and the y-axis. In, in math, we're taught there's a z-axis, right? Three dimensions. You're yeah. not zooming down the z-axis. You're no. actually just zooming in on an x-y-axis. Yeah. yeah. Okay, there's, there's, so, no, there's no z-axis. The mathematical fractals, there's no z-axis. They're two-dimensional. So then you're dealing with a you're dealing with a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a number when you are zooming way yes, in. Yes, that's right. Yes. Yep. Okay. Uh, is it possible, because you showed how the, you have a mathematical formula that creates like lightning, a lightning look in a spiral mm -hmm. galaxy, broccoli, ferns. Mm -hmm. Is it possible that every created item that God himself has created is represented in a mathematical fractal with some physical, with some conceptual parallel? It could be. Nobody knows because they're infinite and we haven't explored and we'll never explore them infinitely because they're infinite. Because we got uh, bow ties. We got yeah, we got bow ties. We got, we got seahorses. We got elephants. Yeah. Um, ferns. Um, broccoli. We got, we got ferns. In, in term, if you will, if you allow different sets, that's probably the case. But nobody really knows. I mean, this 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 is the beginning of the adventure, and and human beings have not explored fractals for real. We've only known about these since 1980. So, I mean, we, we're just at the beginning of the game on these things. So, yeah, if, but if you, they are infinite, so there could be anything in there. When you're looking at the original one with the, the, the cardio... Uh, Cardioid. Mm -hmm. Cardioid. Cardioid. Mm -hmm. When you zoomed in on that where the Valley of the Elephants was mm -hmm. at the tip of that, it looked as if that valley never meets. It goes on and on and on. Is that true, or does it... Does it reach a point at some point where it is stops? Well, they can they connect at one fourth, but in terms of the elephants, the elephants get smaller and smaller, and so there are in fact an infinite number of elephants in Elephant Valley. You could continue to zoom in on that on that cusp forever, infinitely. There's an infinite number of elephants well. until you go to the Z cubed, and there's twice that many, right? <laughs> what are your current thoughts on the God force or the God particle that keeps atoms together? Yeah, so it's 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 poorly named, and I I don't think that they meant any disrespect in calling it the God particle. They're referring to the Higgs the Higgs boson. Uh, it's something that was predicted to exist on the basis of our standard model of particle physics, and the idea is that the Higgs field there's a it, for every particle there's a field that's associated with it. The Higgs field a field is something that penetrates all through space, like a magnetic field. You might have seen a, a magnet with iron filings around it, and how they kind of they, they show you the magnetic field, even though the field itself is invisible, you can make it visible with iron filings. The idea is that there's a Higgs field that permeates the entire universe that gives particles their mass based on how much they interact with the Higgs field. And so particles like light, which don't have any mass, they don't interact with the Higgs field, they just go straight through it. Whereas particles that are heavier, like protons and neutrons, electrons, um, they interact with that Higgs field and that gives them 
mass. And then uh, the Higgs boson is sort of the smallest particle that's associated with that field. And it's, it's, all compl it's, it's complicated, but, but um, I think the physics there is good. I think that the Higgs field is, is, is right. It's good physics. It is the way that God has chosen to impart mass to the particles that he created. So it's not a replacement for God. It's the mechanism that God uses. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. Would you explain how we perceive being outside the Milky Way galaxy looking at it? with the naked eye from our backyard when the spot from which we are standing, observing it, is in the Milky Way galaxy? Yeah, so if you think about it, the Milky Way, it's, it's, um, it's kind of, it's disc-shaped, it's a spiral, and, it, but it's got some thickness to it. It's not like paper, it's got some thickness to it. So what happens when you take a look at a disc that has some thickness edge-on, like a plate edge-on, what does it look like? It looks like a straight line, doesn't it? And that's why when you go out in a summer night, when it's nice and clear, you'll see this straight line, this cloudy band, that's the Milky Way. It's spiral. We're in. It's it's a disc. We're in the disc, and so it looks like a, a straight line that covers that covers the sky that way. But you see pictures of the Milky Way galaxy. Are those artists' conceptions? Because we yes. can't actually go out and take a picture of our galaxy. Right. We can't get outside our galaxy. So if you've seen a, an image of the Milky Way from above, it's an artist's conception. It's not real. Or they'll show another galaxy that's spiral, and they'll say our galaxy looks like this one, which which we think it does. Is the sun diminishing, and, and if the earth is a million years old, would the sun be touching the earth, going back a million years? The, the answer is uh, no. The sun's not, it's not shrinking. There, there was an old argument that, that some creationists had jumped on that said the, the sun is, is shrinking. Um, but no, I, I used the SOHO spacecraft in my doctoral dissertation, and it's able to measure the sun very, very precisely. The sun is not, it's not, it's not shrinking in size, not substantially. How is it burning up without shrinking or consuming fuel? Well, it does consume fuel, but um, the, the, the nuclear fusion that's going on in the core, it's converting hydrogen into helium. So the, num the number of atoms, well, the, the, the number of protons and neutrons remains the same. It's just the protons get converted to neutrons, and that releases energy. So it's, it, it's not really losing mass, not substantially. So it won't lose mass. Will it burn out? Eventually, it, it will, it, once you run out of hydrogen, once all the hydrogen is converted to helium, then there's no more, there's no more power available. And, but the, the, the interesting thing is there's enough, there's enough mass there that it could continue to, to, to it's, it's a very efficient power source. It could continue to fuse hydrogen into helium for potentially 5 to 10 billion years in a hypothetical future. So it's not something you're going to have to worry about in your lifetime. And uh, even, even if it were, the, I'm sure the Lord has, has other plans. Unless I can travel at the speed of light for well, a long true. time. Well, that's true. That's true. And come back. But then, I, but then I think you'd just you'd meet the return of the Lord a lot quicker that way. I think that's what would, that would happen. Who came up with the idea of an Oort cloud originally, and how long has it been an idea or a, a proposition? The Oort cloud, it was invented, it's named after its inventor, uh, Jan Oort. And uh, I forget when he came up with the idea, but it's been around for a while. It's been around for probably almost a century, maybe not quite a century. And... Um, uh, yeah, so he, he came up with that idea that you have a comet generator, that this big sphere of potential comets as a solution to the fact that comets appear to support a young solar system, and we can't have that. What is the evolutionist rationale for a planetary magnetic fields? Okay, so this we, we talked about how magnetic fields decay with time. We can measure that. Um, the secularists, their rescuing device for that is to say that there must be some kind of recharging mechanism that rebuilds the magnetic fields after they decay. And they call it a magnetic dynamo. And it's, it's supposed to work a bit like the alternator in your car. The alternator in your car takes the mechanical energy from the wheels and uses that to recharge the battery. So the idea is that you can take mechanical energy from a planet's rotation and somehow put that into the magnetic field. 
And there are many problems with that, not the least of which is the alternator in your car is a pretty complicated, it's a complex instrument. It, it, takes, it takes some design to be able to take mechanical energy and transform it into electrical energy, uh, whereas you don't have that complex mechanism in something like the Earth. Also, the dynamo requ requires differential rotation. It would require the Earth's equator to be spinning faster than the poles, which doesn't work so well for a solid planet like the Earth, right? It rotates as a solid body. And uh, there are other problems with the dynamo model, too. For one thing, it requires the, ro the rotation axis to be aligned with the magnetic axis, which for the Earth, they're not too far off. They're like 11 degrees apart. But for Uranus, they're way off. It's like 96 degrees tilted or something. And likewise for Neptune, they're way off. So uh, it's, it, it, has, it has made um, predictions that have been falsified, whereas Dr. Humphrey's model has made predictions that have been verified. What is the biggest star we know of, and how much bigger is it than our sun? I'm not sure what the, the, the latest number is. I, I showed Antares in the presentation. Antares is about 600 times the size of the sun. So is Betelgeuse. They're both uh, very, they're, they're enormous stars. Uh, the biggest one would be maybe twice as big as Betelgeuse. And we think that stars probably can't get too much bigger than that anyway. There's a certain limit on the, on the mass and size of stars for physical reasons. What limits them? Uh, it, there's what's called the Eddington limit for one, which uh, it turns out that uh, if you make a star uh, bigger than a certain amount, it, it increases the pressure in the core to the point that the star would explode before you could actually get it together even. So that's, that's called the Eddington limit. And that limits the, that's a mass limit, though. That limits the mass to something like 200 suns, I think. Um, so that would be one, one limitation. Is it true that all the stars start as giant ones, but over time become red dwarfs and eventually explode? No, it's not true. The, the, even in the secular view, they don't believe that. They, they used to teach that stars started as blue stars and then faded to red. Nobody believes that anymore either, by the way. Um, the, the latest view is that stars start as main sequence stars. We talk about main sequence stars. They obey the rule. If you know the mass, you know everything else about it. And, um, and then they evolve into uh, giant stars. And depending on the mass, some of them evolve into supergiants. Uh, stars like the sun that are relatively low mass uh, are supposedly, and they, they um, eventually when they run out of fuel and they collapse in on themselves and become a white dwarf, stars that are much more massive than the sun are thought to explode when they, uh, when they run out of fuel. It's kind of counterintuitive. You run out of fuel, so, you know, you explode. Oh, okay. Um, we do know stars explode, but I'm not sure that's the right explanation for why. And in terms of stellar evolution, I'm not convinced that much of that, I don't, I'm not convinced there's much merit to it. It's not something, it's not something you can observe. Right? We don't observe stars changing over time, except a little bit. Sometimes their color will change a little bit, or their brightness will change a little bit from uh, century to century. But uh, in terms of seeing a star swell up into a giant, we've never seen that. It's, ne it's never happened. I think giant stars have probably created giant stars. When secular scientists talk about the Kuiper belt, what are they referring to? The creationists have another meaning. For okay. Oh, yeah. Um, so, so there's actually, I simplified it a little bit for the presentation, but there's, there's two types of comets. There are short period comets, which have a, a period of less than 200 years, and there are long period comets, which have a period longer than 200 years, or equal to 200 years. And it turns out short period comets tend to orbit in the plane of the solar system. They tend to orbit in the same disk as the planets, roughly. They can be off a little bit. And they tend to orbit in the same direction as the planets, with some exceptions. Halley's Comet's an exception. It orbits backwards relative to the planets. But long period comets are like cats. They just do what they want. They have tails and they do what they want. And, um, and so a long period comet, if the planets are in this plane, a long period comet might be like this. It might come in like that and zip out. 
Okay, and so in in another in a different one will come in like that, and a different one will come in like that. So what they've done is they've prepared, and and both of these, both short period comets and long period comets, are a problem for billions of years. But since they're two different, uh, they're two different um, categories of comets. They've had to propose two different sources for them, and so the Oort cloud is supposed to resupply the long period comets, and then the Kuiper belt is supposed to resupply the short period comets. It gets a little more complex, though, because what, what happened was they were expecting to find trillions of comet-sized objects out beyond Neptune in a disk, okay? And they ought to look like comets. Instead, what they found were several hundred objects that are much larger than comets. Comets usually four or five miles across, okay, in terms of the nucleus. They started finding objects that are 50 to 100, 500, 1,000 miles across, something like that, much, much bigger than comets, orbiting out at that distance, and not quite, a, kind of in the disk, but but with the, quite, quite a bit more range than they were expecting. And they found that these objects typically were not the same color as comets. They tended to be redder than comets, which suggests their, their composition is different. And what they did was they started, they said, well, see, we found the Kuiper belt. Um, and that wasn't remotely what you were expecting. You were expecting to find trillions of tiny comets, and instead you found hundreds of much larger objects that aren't even the same color as comets. And, and so <laughs> they, said, they, they now call that the Kuiper belt. Okay, you can name it whatever you want, but it's not the kind of Kuiper belt they were expecting, and it's not the kind of Kuiper belt that will resupply short period comets. So it's, there's still a problem. Is there evidence for one original continent moving into the ones that we have now? Yeah, there is. The, uh, I, I do accept the idea of Pangaea, the idea that the continents were originally connected. By the way, that's a creationist concept. Yeah, it was a creationist that came up with the idea that, that the continents were separated during the worldwide flood. And it was the secularists that hated that because they well, you can't move something as big as a continent. And then uh, after, after a while, they finally warmed up to the idea and they said, maybe we can accept that as long as we slow it down and, and let it take millions and millions of years. But uh, we do think that the continents were connected before uh, Noah's flood. The fact that they fit together is pretty good evidence. And the fact that fossils, you can, you can line up the fossils in certain regions. You'll find that fossils of creatures that lived before the flood that are on, say, the east coast of the United States match up with those in, in I guess, would be Europe. But in any case, you can match up the way the fossils are. Certain mountain chains that are that are pre-flood mountain chains, and that would be like um, maybe the Appalachians would be late, late flood or possibly pre-flood. Uh, some of those line up as well. So there's good evidence that the continents were connected before the flood, and and that would make it that would make sense too. Uh, some people have said the scriptures may suggest that. Uh, the Bible says that originally God called um, God caused the waters to gather together into one place, which might suggest the land was in the other place. I, I don't know that that's conclusive, but uh, it would make it easier for the animals to get to the ark too, because they wouldn't have to they wouldn't have to cross an ocean. And uh, getting back's a little trickier, but not too much, because the ocean levels would have been lower after the flood. There had land bridges and ice bridges and such. Why are secular scientists using a multiverse to support their origin of the universe? Uh, yeah, the multiverse. I think it's a, it's a it's a uh, version of the gambler's fallacy, which is uh, the idea that if you flipped a coin, you know, ten times in a row, what are the odds that they'd all come up heads up? I mean, it'd be astronomical, right? And so somebody says, well, boy, you know, we've got we got this universe that's extremely fine tuned. It's kind of like we landed heads up ten times in a row. Therefore, there, it must just be that there's actually a, an incredible number of universes, and we just happened to get the one that, that got lucky. And uh, so that's a form of the gambler's fallacy. It'd be like saying, I've, I, you know, I, I, I had this incredibly improbable event happen. Therefore, there must be lots of other rooms with other people gambling that where they lost. 
it, it, it doesn't make sense to me. But it has to do with the fact that the universe appears to be well-designed for life. Everybody knows that. Secularists know that. The universe is fine-tuned. It's designed for life. And that just doesn't make sense if the universe is chance. And so the idea is, well, there must be an infinite number of universes, and we just happen to land in the one that got lucky. That's really what it comes down to. How do they recalculate the age of the universe? Is there any concern from scientists or secularists that their numbers continue to change so many times with such a vast difference? Yeah, that's a concern. The, the way that they calculate the age of the universe, they don't calculate it. They estimate it. They, they make a guess at the age of the universe by assuming... By measuring the rate of expansion, which we call the Hubble constant, the rate at which the universe is expanding, assuming that the conditions were basically like that in the past, and then rolling it back to a point where everything would be in a point. And so that's, I think that's an unreasonable extrapolation, because it assumes that the universe was not created with size. I know it was created with size. Genesis tells us that. Uh, so that's what they're assuming. They're, they're taking the Hubble constant and running it backwards including for effects of gravity and things like that. It's, it's, it's a little bit complicated, but that, that's the basic idea. They run that back in time. And what happens is, is every now and then they reestimate the Hubble constant because they'll, they'll measure the... It's very hard to measure the expansion rate of the universe because you need to measure the redshifts of galaxies. That's easy. And then you need to find the distance to those galaxies. That's hard. It's, it's hard to get the distance to galaxies precisely. There's a few different methods that they use. And recently they just redid that. They reestimated the Hubble constant and it made the universe uh, younger by a billion years or so than the, the previous estimate. Uh, and that is an issue. That is an issue because, uh, you know, last year, you're just a moron if you didn't believe the universe is 13.8 billion years old. Now you're a moron if you do believe that because now we know it's only 12 to 13 billion years old and so on. And so it does change from time to time. And then occasionally they'll, they'll run into inconsistency. There's actually an inconsistency now because one estimate that they used to give the 13.8 billion years, that's still, a, that's still a good estimate in their view, and yet they've got another one that contradicts it. So it's, it's, it's really perplexing. I think it's a problem. Are atheist presuppositions accepted as brute facts, and is there a rational argument for brute facts? Yeah, I think most atheists are totally oblivious to their own presuppositions. And if you do pin them down and finally get them to think through them, they will accept them as brute facts. But then, of course, I'm going to point out that, no, you, you can't have brute facts. Every, every, facts are interpreted. They're, they are interpreted. Uh, anything that you believe, you need to, if you're going to be a rational person, you need to be able to give a reason for it. right? That's what rationality is. It's having good reasons for what you believe and abandoning beliefs for which you do not have good reasons. That's the whole point of education, by the way, is to, is to come up with good biblical reasons for what you believe. Children are not rational. Children don't have good reasons for what they believe. They believe there's a monster in the closet. They have no logical reason to believe there's a monster in the closet. But they nonetheless act on that belief. They pull the sheets over their head, and they think that protects them from the monster in the closet. And they wake up the next morning and conclude that must have saved them. Now, that is not logical. And we expect that from children. But when adults behave that way, it's a problem. And so I would say to my atheistic friend, he says, well, I, just, I know the scientific method. I don't need to give a reason for it. I'm going to say, actually, if you're going to be rational, you do. Otherwise, you're acting like a child. You believe in the monster in the closet, and you have no basis for it. And so I would argue that, that secularists do not have a basis for logic, science, mathematics, any of that stuff. They, can't, they cannot account for it in their own worldview, and therefore, they're being like little children, believing in something for which they have no basis on their own worldview. Is there more helium in space than on Earth? Uh, well... Uh, Yes, because there's more space. <laughs> so, if you're talking about density, I don't know. Um, the Earth tends to have a lot more of the heavier stuff, the heavier elements, oxygen and carbon, silicon, things like that. So is the Earth losing helium because it continues to rise yes. into space? It, yeah, the helium, it's a little counterintuitive. Helium, I mean, helium has gravity. We tend to think of helium as, as floating and has levity, but that's because it displaces air 
and air is heavier than, than helium, oxygen and nitrogen are heavier than helium. But helium, uh, once it gets out to the outer atmosphere, outer atmosphere, especially when you have a solar flare, and that'll heat up the Earth's atmosphere, and that'll kick out helium atoms. And so the Earth is slowly leaking helium. That's true. And yeah. where do helium, where do nebulae get their helium? And how do nebulae form? I don't think nebulae do form. I think they were created uh, by God. I don't think there's any other explanation for that. And the original elements, hydrogen and helium, I think those are all created they're created by God. Some people say, well, you know, the, you've heard the old expression, we're all made of star stuff. Carl Sagan used to say that. We're all made of, you know, stardust. Because in the secular view, the Big Bang can't produce heavier elements like oxygen and nitrogen, all the stuff that the Earth's made of. You can't make that in the Big Bang. The Big Bang's supposed to produce hydrogen and helium. Uh, but the Big Bang has its own set of problems. But... Uh, <laughs> The bottom line is we know that the Earth was created before the stars, so the Earth is not made of star stuff. Um, I think so. The nebulae, I think, are created by God. Yeah. What do you believe is the reason God created man? Why did God create man? We know I can give that an, an ultimate answer to that is for his own glory, because everything that God does is for his own glory. In terms of the specifics, I can't give a, a specific answer to that. Um, God doesn't require us, I can tell you that. We, we are not needed. But uh, nonetheless, God is a God of love, and so he, I think he made human beings to love. Now, he, he ha there's three members of the Trinity, so God doesn't need people to love, because God, the three members of the Trinity love the, the other, each member of the Trinity loves the other two members of the Trinity, so you have love without people, but nonetheless, it's out of his graciousness, out of his love, uh, God created human beings, and, uh, and, and of course, freely offers salvation to us, even though we've rebelled against him. That's awesome, awesome thought. I would just add to that, um, one of the things that God does in creating man and allowing history to unfold as he has is to display his attributes mm -hmm. not only to himself but also to his creation. So e even without the creation of everything, God would not be able to display his attributes of long-suffering and grace and mercy and justice because there would be no opportunity amongst the members of the Trinity for God to show his justice, his mercy, his grace, or his long-suffering. But with a sinful humanity, he can do that. And he can display those attributes to his creation for his glory and for the good of that creation. Mm. So that that creation, he can lavish it with its goodness while displaying those attributes, glorify himself, and be good to you and I. Mm -hmm. That's true. What was God doing before creation? The interesting thing about that question is <laughs> there is no before the creation, you understand? Because in the beginning, it's in the beginning that God created. So there's no time before creation. Now... Um, God exists. But God, exi God exists beyond creation. That might be a better way to put it. God created time. There is no before the beginning. It's like going further north than the North Pole. You get the North Pole, that's it. You're done. Um, but but God is not limited to creation. And God's God is not temporal either. He's, he doesn't exist within time. That's hard for us. That's hard for us to understand because all our thinking is within time. We're temporal creatures. We live within. We need, we need space and time to exist. God doesn't need space or time to exist. He made space and time. So there, there isn't there. There actually is no before the beginning. We might talk about it metaphorically, you know. Before the beginning, God was. There really isn't a before the beginning, even though God is, God is beyond, uh, space and time. Is the Aristotelian proof of the existence of God consistent with a biblical worldview? If it attempts to prove God without the Bible, is that an example of general revelation? Hmm. In a, in a sense, uh, yes. Aristotle argued that that God is the prime mover. Uh, it's, it's interesting. His argument's interesting. I don't think it's the best argument because the best argument is that that we know God exists as we have revelation from God. Right? We have, of course, we have ultimately His Word. 
but even Aristotle's arguments, Aristotle's assuming things like laws of logic, Aristotle is considered the pioneer of laws of logic, really, but he, he discovered them and was able to do so because of the mind of God, you see. So even, even his argument tacitly presupposes the Christian worldview, even though he didn't identify as a, as a Christian. What are your thoughts on Planet Nine? And I'm assuming they're not asking about Pluto. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's currently no evidence of any planets beyond Neptune. That doesn't mean it's impossible that there could be. If they exist, they're really far out there and very dark because the technology now exists that if there were a planet, say, two or three times the distance of Neptune that's as big as the Earth, we would have found it. We would have already seen it. So that means they're either not there or they're really far away or they're nearly pitch black where they don't give off, they don't reflect much sunlight back. So it is possible that there's another planet out there. Does there come a point at which the distance that a planet would be away from our sun would be too far for it to actually be within our sun's gravitational pull of any size? Yeah, yeah. once you get out to a substantial fraction of the distance to the next star, then uh, it, it's not that the gra it, gra gravity never goes to zero, it just diminishes, but it diminishes to the point where the, the next star out would have a significant effect on that planet and would tend to eject, it would tend to eject it from our solar system. So once you get out to maybe beyond 10,000 astronomical units, astro one astronomical unit is the distance from the Earth to the Sun, so you get 10,000 10, times that distance, then the effects of the gravity of the other stars starts to kick in and you can't really have stable orbits too much, too much beyond that. Do you agree with Kepler's idea that science is thinking God's thoughts after him? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I think that's the whole point of science is to, uh, to think God's thoughts after him and to glorify him for what he's made in the consistent way that he, peels, that he upholds creation. And what advice do you have for homeschool parents raising their children or choosing their kids' science curriculum? Well, I got some, I got some great resources <laughs> back there. Uh, <laughs> you might check out uh, my friends over at Answers in Genesis as well. They have some wonderful curricula there. Uh, just make sure you get them solid in the Word of God. And uh, education, you know, it's interesting because I, I, I went through the public school system. I'm not proud of that, but um, it's just true. And, you know, some people say, well, you know, you went to public school and you turned out okay. First of all, I'm not okay. <laughs> okay, I'm not. Um, <laughs> uh, you don't believe that Pluto was a planet, so there you go. <laughs> so there you go, yeah. And, uh, and, and secondly, God can, you know, God can redeem us. He can, he can use, he can use, the miseducation that I had, and, and it's, don't get me wrong, I, I appreciate, maybe some of you are teachers in the public education, I, I appreciate that there are Christians in public education that are displacing someone who would undoubtedly teach a very secular worldview, so I'm not, I'm not knocking that, but nonetheless, I'm, I'm a strong advocate of homeschooling, I think it's wonderful, because it really is, is really biblical, and you, you can delegate, I believe, but nonetheless, God never gave the government the right over children's education, never. And uh, it's kind of interesting, you know, Jesus, when he, they show him a, he, they ask him about taxes and he says, show me a, you know, show me a coin whose, whose face is on this coin, whose image is on this coin, Caesar, give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Whose image are children made in? God's image. Don't give unto Caesar that which belongs to God, you know. Um, that being the, that being the case, um, I, I'm a strong advocate of homeschooling. If you can do it, it's really, it's really a wonderful thing to do. And there's some wonderful resources now available, the resources back there. And um, I now believe that the point of education is to learn to think in a way that's consistent with the mind of God. That's the point of education, to, to take captive every thought into obedience to Christ. That's a biblical theme. And so if, you know, if I'm going to teach children, I'm going to teach them history from the perspective, not just that here's a bunch of dead guys and what happened to them. No, here is, God, here is the sovereign unfolding of God's plan throughout time. 
That's a different perspective, isn't it? Mathematics, I'm not just going to teach them, here's what you need to know so you can you know, build bridges. I'm going to say, no, here, here's a window into the mind of God. That's kind of what I, what I showed in the previous session. And I find a lot of people, if they're, if they're taught it that way, wow, math isn't so boring after all. It's, I'm thinking God's thoughts after him. That's kind of different, isn't it? What advice then do you have for parents whose kids are in public school or private school that is not a young earth creationist environment? Uh, pull them out. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I, I do think it's okay to, uh, to delegate a little bit, but you have to be very careful about that. You're, you're responsible for the education of your children. Yes, you can delegate. You can say, you know, uh, Uncle Fred is really good at math. I'd like him to teach you math. Okay, that's fine. But you're still responsible, ultimately, for them. Um, and so it'd be, it'd be, it's, homeschooling's great. It's, um, if, you can, if you can send them to a private school, especially a Christian school, it's going to teach biblical creation. They're rare, but there are a few of them. That's a great option as well. In Scripture, God has prescribed the eating of animal flesh, and our bodies seem to be biologically adapted to the proteins and fats of healthful, uh, as healthful, uh, are bi biologically adapted to eating proteins and fats and being able to process them, I guess. Yes, Adam and e yet Adam and Eve were vegetarians prior to the fall when there was no death. Therefore, is it true that consuming meat is short of God's original design? Well, it, it is in the sense, yeah, I mean, originally... Human beings were designed to eat plants. And animals, all animals were originally vegetarian, according to Genesis 129 and 30. So, um, and a lot of people think, well, that's, you know, that's silly. That's you tell me lions used to eat plants? Yes, lions used to eat plants. And by the way, sometimes, even today, they'll go back to their pre-fall diet. There was a case of uh, Little Tyke. She was a 350-pound female lion raised in captivity who refused to eat meat her entire life. They give, they try, I've got pictures of her. They tried to give her meat. She turned away from it. She didn't even like the smell of meat. She liked milk, but not meat. And she, liked, she did like eggs, but not meat. And so animals don't really need meat. They don't. Even things animals that we think of as carnivores, uh, human beings, we don't really need meat. Now, it is true that today in, in, our, in our fallen world, it's a post-flood world. It was after the time of the flood, God gave Noah permission to eat meat. And there's any number of reasons why that could be. It could be that, I mean, there are some plants that are now extinct. And it could be that some of those plants had some of the proteins that, that we're missing now. Um, I mean, I don't know, I mean, but, but the fact is God did give us permission to eat meat. So in Genesis, I think it's Genesis 9-3, so where, you know, all, everything that, everything that, every living thing that moves, you know, I'm giving you to eat. So that's why you can eat a hot dog, because that's pretty much every living thing that, that moves. <laughs> so, uh, so you're okay with that. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is short of the original plan, but it might be, it might be, it's probably a good idea to eat meat unless you're, unless you're really conscious about, about, um, Getting the, make sure you get the right nutrients from, from plants. Is there going to be a follow-up to the basics of presuppositional apologetics in future presentations of your book form or any presuppositional works that are coming down the line? Yes. And, and in fact, they're already done. A couple of them are already done. The, the two DVDs called Nuclear Strength Apologetics, there's two of them, those are follow-ups to the, the ultimate proof of creation that I did last night. And they go into they go into other areas and just kind of explore that concept a little bit more and and practical application too. Um, in at least one of those DVDs, I go through and I show um, conversations that I've had with people. Some of them via email, where I've, I've dialogued with folks. Uh, also on our website, the Biblical Science Institute, a lot of one of one of the more popular sections on that website is called Refuting the Critics. And I'll go through and I'll show you how to do presuppositional apologetics. Um, every response I give is a presuppositional response. Now, sometimes I'll bring in evidence, but I do it in a presuppositional way, a way that assumes biblical authority, presupposes biblical authority, and does an internal critique of the secular worldview. So the website, those DVDs, and I'm sure we'll have more in the future. Yeah. 
Is the difference between a wild animal and a domestic a loss of information? Wolves are wild, have more information. Black Labradors are domestic and have less information. That is so. generally true. That is generally true. Domesticated animals tend to have less of the heterozygous state. We have big A, little a, big B, little b. Uh, domestic animals tend to have more of the um, uh, homozygous, big A, big A, little, little b, little b, and so on. And, uh, for, and, and that, that does cause problems because the, the, it turns out that a lot of diseases, if they're, if they're caused by a mutation, um, a lot of times if you'll have a, a mutated gene and a healthy gene, you won't suffer a disease. You'll be healthy. The, the the good gene will sort of cover up the the bad gene. Mutations, in other words, mutations tend to be recessive. Uh, but on the other hand, if you have domestic animals where you've inbred them, that co that concentrates those mutations. You see, and so you're more likely to get a mutated a mutated gene on the same on the same locus, um, the same site or locus. Anyway, um, and then you're more likely to suffer from a disease. So that's why domestic animals tend to be not as healthy as wild ones. If evolution is just a rescue device or cover for immorality, isn't attacking evolution missing the foundation? Isn't the foundational problem really just a rebellion and evolution is an excuse? So should we as believers then focus on rebellion primarily and evolution secondarily? Yeah, I think there's something to that. Uh, it's, it's certainly the case that, that, that people use evolution as an intellectual cover for their sin, for the fact that they have a, a, a rebellious heart. But here's the problem. You can't change a person's heart. You can't. That's up to God. Only God can change a person's heart. And so, um, I, my goal as an apologist is to deal is to do what God tells me to do to give a defense of the faith. And so, I'm going to deal primarily with the intellectual blocks that they raise, knowing that it is in fact a heart issue. There's no doubt about that. And I would not be uh, hesitant to point it out to them. Say, so, you know, the reason you believe in evolution ultimately is because you're a wicked sinner. Really. And I said, and you know, unless you think I'm talking down to you, that's exactly what I would be, except the Lord changed my heart. So I'm not superior to you in any way. I was a wicked sinner before God turned my heart around. I'd be in the same boat you're in. So, and because I care about you, I want to share with you, you know, some of these things. So it is a heart issue, and you do need to keep that in mind, but you also need to keep in mind you can't change a person's heart. All we can do is help them over the intellectual stumbling blocks. We want to urge them, obviously, to repent, knowing that ultimately repentance is a gift from God. Are we now discovering, or are we not discovering, that even the physical may be infinite? Quarks and the smaller particles with silly names. Sorry, I cannot remember the names of them, but I believe there are four. Okay. Uh, I don't think so. We, we think that quarks are fundamental, meaning they're not made up of anything smaller. We think electrons are fundamental. They're not made up of anything smaller. Uh, could they be? Yes. But there are some reasons to think they probably aren't. Because once you get down to the quantum level... Uh, nature gets really weird, <laughs> really, really fast. You think relativity is weird? Talk about quantum mechanics. Oh, it's bizarre. Things that don't act like discrete particles anymore. They start acting like waves. And, we're in a, and a wave doesn't have one position in a space, right? A wave's kind of everywhere, isn't it? And uh, particles start behaving like that, where they start acting like they're kind of here and there. And it's, it's not a violation of laws of logic, because a wave can be here and there, because a wave is extended in space. And so particles start behaving like that. And so if they were made up of smaller particles, then you, they, wouldn't have that, they wouldn't have that wave nature. This will be a quick one. How do you challenge or refute the worldview of secular evolution growing within the church today? The idea that God used evolution 
and mankind, Adam and Eve, were just the first to be made in God's image. Yeah, the, 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 the first presentation I gave today really hit that topic pretty hard. Uh, the fact is that, that um, all, all Christian theology is based on creation, directly or indirectly. The fact that God made Adam and Eve, were made in the image of God, and therefore responsible to God for actions. Adam sinned, that's why we're, we're born into the world sinners, sinners beget sinners. So we have that sin nature. Uh, the fact that death is the penalty for sin, that's a Genesis theme. If Adam and Eve is just a fairy tale, you have, you have no rational basis for believing that death is the penalty for sin. And if that's not the case, why did Jesus die on the cross? And so it, it, it's, it's very clear that, and also too, it, I think it impugns the nature of God to say that God is a cruel ogre who created over billions of years of death and suffering, that he intended it to be that way and, saw, and said it's very good. No, it's not very good. And things die and things suffer, not because of God's fault, but because it's the right punishment for sin. It's our fault, not God's fault. And you really, the person who blames God for death and suffering is doing just exactly what Adam did. When Adam sinned, he blamed God indirectly. He, did. he blamed the woman. But he said, the woman who you gave to me. Why did he say that? Was it to distinguish Eve from all the other women that were on the planet? <laughs> No, he's, he's, he's impugning God. He's saying, you know, you, you really you gave her to me. <laughs> and, and that is inappropriate. Adam had nobody to blame but Adam. And, uh, and likewise, when we say, you know, God's responsible for death and suffering, and that's what you believe if you believe in, ev in evolution. If you believe God guided it, then you believe God is responsible for death and suffering. But no, we are responsible for death and suffering. And what is the most difficult single evidence for old earth that you still struggle with? Oh, I don't think there are any. I mean, I, I would be honest with you if I thought there were some. Uh, I think I think Starlight was the last issue for me, but now now that I've studied that more, I think well that's that's a non-starter right there. The idea that that Starlight proves an old universe it doesn't. If you know anything about relativity, the you know Einstein physics and synchrony conventions, and I, I know that's complicated if you haven't heard that stuff before. But what, I've studied it for a long time, and uh, so for me it's it's very very clear. Uh, radiometric dating and before the rate project that was kind of a holdout, but now we we've got really good answers to that to the point that it kind of flips it around. It's like how do you explain radiometric dating if you believe in millions of years? Because the fact is, I didn't cover this in the presentation, but radioactive decay produces helium as a byproduct, and we find helium in these rocks that we find. And yet, if it had happened over millions of years, as the evolutionists believe, the helium should have leaked out because rocks are porous. They have little holes in them, and they can leak gas. And we've measured the rate at which they leak gas, and it's rapid. And so the fact is, if, if this radioactivity really had happened over billions of years, why do these rocks have so much helium in them? And the, the rate research team studied that issue and, and found that it, the data are consistent with about 6,000 years. Very consistent. And so you, you turn that around on them, you say, you know, what used to be your main argument really belongs to us now. Uh, the fact is you can't account for these things. I don't think there is, I have yet to hear a good argument for an old earth. All of them assume arbitrarily either naturalism, the idea that there's no God, God didn't create, or uniformitarianism, which is the idea that rates and conditions have been basically constant and therefore denies a worldwide flood. And those are anti-biblical assumptions, aren't they? And so anyone who makes an argument for an old earth has already rejected the biblical timeline in order to make the argument, in which case they are begging, begging the, question. the question. Yes, very good. So if you assume what you're trying to prove, yes. which evolutionists have to do in order to order for an old earth, they have to make certain assumptions, they're begging the question. Every argument that I've heard for an old earth begs the question. Every single one. I have yet to find an exception. And by the way, lest people think, well, you're doing that too. No, I'm not. Because you'll notice the arguments that I made were an internal critique, where I assumed the, the starting point of my opponent to show that it leads to a contradiction. I assumed, for the sake of argument... That, that that uniformitarianism is true, and that the moon really has been moving at this at this 
at this general rate, the tidal breaking constant's always been the same. That's a uniformitarian assumption, you see, and it leads to an inconsistency. Anyway, you still get a young, you still get a young universe, you see. And so the arguments that we make do not beg the question; rather, they're an example of the "don't answer" answer strategy. What's the difference between world and planet? World's more generic. Uh, you can even use world to talk about like the world of men. You know, uh, world is just a, a region. The moon is a, is a world. Um, I, I like to use it as just kind of a generic term for anything, really. World. Planet has a specific definition, um, especially now that the International Astronomical Union, that back in 2005, they came up with the definition. It's not a perfect definition, but it's it's sufficient. A planet has to be uh, it has to be round in shape, basically round. And it has to it has to have cleared out all the other objects that are orbiting at that distance. So if you have other similar sized objects at that distance, then it's not considered a planet. Okay, so we have two different last and final categories of questions. Okay. One is not something you've touched on here, but okay. I'll throw it out there and let you take a swing at it. How do you defend the infallibility of the Bible as it has been translated and interpreted differently over time in and out of context? especially with reference to Genesis? Well, you know, it's interesting. People who ask that question obviously often haven't, uh, haven't really studied that issue because when you take a look at, you know, people say, well, the Bible's a translation of a translation of a translation. I'm sorry, but you don't know what you're talking about. The Bible's been translated once. I mean, in terms of most of the major translations today have been translated directly from Hebrew into English and directly from and then the New Testament directly from Greek into English. It's been translated once. Now, the copying issue is different because the Bible has been copied many times, but we, we find ancient copies of the Bible. And so we can, we can see often where little changes have come in. And yes, little changes have come in over time. Uh, that, that's kind of, uh, I think, disappointing to some Christians when they first learn that because they have this impression that you know, the Bible um, came down in its current form in the NIV on Mount Sinai, and you know, and it's and it's exactly the way that it used to be. It's it's not. It's changed. It's changed a little bit, but the fact that we can see these older copies, we can see where it's changed, and we can often reconstruct the original. And so we know what the original text was. And when you do compare these ancient manuscripts, you find that the Bible really is the most authentic book of the ancient world. Uh, there there are a couple of ways you could measure the authenticity of a book in terms of its faithfulness to the original copy. Uh, one of them would be the number of ancient manuscripts that you find. More is better, obviously, because then you can compare and you can see where there are little differences. If they're all, if you know, these if this verse is the same in all of them, you can say, well, that's that pretty much that's pretty much it, isn't it? If there are little changes, you can say, oh yeah, but this change doesn't this word doesn't make sense in this. What that one does, that's obviously the original. You can often figure it out. So the number of ancient manuscripts, and then the the shortness of the time between when the when the document was originally written and the oldest one that we find, shorter being better, right? Because shorter time, there's been less time for there to be any changes made. And when you when you use those two criteria, you find that the most authentic book of the ancient world is the Bible, by far. The New Testament followed by the Old Testament, and then like in a distant third is like the Iliad or something like that by Homer. And so um, it, when you do your homework, the, the Bible has been very faithfully transmitted. And I, I won't say that it's perfect, but it's been faithfully transmitted to the point that if you look at the changes on these different things, it, it amounts to like one word per page on a typical Bible. That's how much it's changed. Not much. And most of those are very minor, the instead of a or something like that. Uh, there's been no changes in any of the major in any of the major doctrines. So the Bible really has, if, if you do your homework, the Bible really has been very faithfully uh, preserved for us by the Lord. When you talk about changes in the transmission of the text, you're really not talking about changes so much as you're talking about copyist errors. Yes, copyist errors. And that's different. It's not like somebody read a verse and then said, well, I'm going to change it. I'm going to throw a, a reincarnation out of the text and change it to be something else. Or I'm going to insert resurrection into the text and change it from something else. We're talking about 
sometimes word order, sometimes the absence or presence of an indefinite or definite article, sometimes talking about yeah. misspellings yeah. of words, uh, the elimination of a word, or sometimes the contraction of words, like can't from cannot, things like that, that are copyist errors that do not affect the meaning of the text. They affect the appearance of the text. Yeah. That's the type of changes that we're making, but they're copyist errors, which we can identify when you compare copies to copies. So I'll give you, since we have a few minutes, I'll give you a, a quick illustration of this. Um, imagine that I were to put four or five sentences up on that screen, and then I were to give you a few minutes to copy word for word those everybody in this room, four or five, those four or five paragraphs up on the screen, and everybody made a copy, and then I eliminated that, took it off of the screen. If we went out here and compared copy with copy with copy, you would find some spelling errors, you would find some punctuation errors, you'd find the, the absence of a certain article, a or an or the, but if we took all the copies that were represented in this room, we compared them with one another, do you think we could accurately recreate the original that was on the screen? Beyond a shadow of a doubt, we could, because we can identify what the copyist errors are in Scripture. So that's what we're talking about. Fair enough? Yeah. Okay, so the last question that we have was probably asked by half a dozen different people, and it had to do with climate change, okay. global warming. Yeah. So let me give you kind of the range of the kinds of questions that were asked, and then you can answer this or we can kick this around uh, as our final topic. Because I don't believe that you addressed this at all in, in the presentations. No. Okay. Uh, here's a sampling of the questions. Would the movement of the moon away from the earth and the decay of the magnetic force explain what used to be called global warming? Wait, hold, hold on. Let me give okay. you some more. Um, is, the climate, is the climate of today unprecedented or has it happened before? What is the evidence of man's causation of climate change? And is the data consistent and definite or variable and subject to interpretation depending on one's agenda? Let's okay. grab some of those, and then we'll move on to other related questions. Okay, I don't think the, the moon or the magnetic field affect the weather too much. The, the moon shouldn't affect it hardly at all, because it, it's only, it's only since creation, the moon's only moved 730 feet away from the Earth. So it's not a huge difference. The magnetic field might have a very small effect in that... Um, the magnetic field prevents cosmic rays from um, intersecting the Earth's atmosphere. And some people have theorized that cosmic rays can form seeds for clouds, so there could be a very slight effect on weather, but I wouldn't think it would be very substantial. So I don't think that would affect it uh, very much. Is, is our current period of uh, climate change unprecedented? No, the climate changes from time to time. It happens. There was a period around, around 1000 AD where we had what we call the middle, medieval warmer, warming period, where there, there's evidence that the Earth's temperature was just a little higher during that time, higher than it is today, actually. There was a period during the, I think it's the 1700s, where we had a, what they call the Little Ice Age in Europe, where the Earth's temperatures went down for a little while, for a few decades, and came back up. Climate change is natural. It tends to, it tends to be cyclic because it, it and, and it, not necessarily a, a simple cycle. But we, we don't know exactly why these things happen, why it goes down and up. A lot of it could be connected to the sun. The sun has natural cycles, some of which we understand, some of which we don't understand. But the sun is the sun does not always produce exactly the same luminosity. It's a little bit hotter at times and a little bit cooler at times. Uh, when the sun has more sunspots, when it's active, you might think it'd be cooler because the sunspots are darker, but the rest of the sun overcompensates. And so the sun is slightly warmer when sunspots are high. And Earth's temperatures tend to be a little warmer when there's, when there's more sunspots on the sun. And that's, that's a 22-year cycle. But then there are other longer cycles that, that could affect it as well. What was the other, the other one, that last one? I forget. Uh, the moon. Oh, the agenda. 
Say that again. Is the, is the data consistent and definitive or okay. variable and subject to interpretation to fit yeah. a preconceived agenda? Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's some data that's that's clear. The fact, I mean, I think there's good evidence that the Earth's temperature is a little bit warmer now than it was 100 years ago. It's, it's gone up by like a degree and a half. There's some evidence for that. So that's that's good data. The rest uh, really is speculation, though, in terms of well, it's gonna it's gonna run away and 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 become you know, <laughs> you're gonna have runaway global warming, and they used to say that, and that, but there's been no evidence of global warming for the last 20 years. So now they call it climate change. That way, no matter what happens, they can say we were right. But um, yeah, there's been no evidence of that at all for the last 20 years. So it's it, we're just you know it's just a natural cycle that that um, there's no evidence that it'll run away catastrophically. By the way, we have a promise from God that catastrophic global warming will not happen until at least until judgment day and there's no preventing that one but um genesis 8:22, god promises that the basic cycles of nature the seasons seed time and harvest will continue in the future as they have in the past day and night cycle will continue in the future as in the past as long as the earth remains and so we have a promise from god that that catastrophic global warming that would that would end life that would end the seasons can't happen it's not possible not possible. Do you remember back in the 1980s, we were all warned about global cooling yeah. and the coming ice age? Yeah. You guys all remember that? I do. Yeah. Um, are there assumptions built into the global warming models, global warming hysteria? Are there certain things that they have to assume in order to make that hysteria seem reasonable? Yes. One of which is the Milankovitch theory, it, it, which is, it's just a, <laughs> I don't want to go into too much detail. It's a ridiculous model that's based on, it's based on evolution, it's based on millions of years. The idea that the Earth's, uh, it has to do with the, the orbital resonance that the Earth has with the sun and so on and so forth. I'm not going to go into the details of it, but you don't have to know that to know. Yes, it's very model dependent. That the Milankovitch theory is internally inconsistent because it requires two different data points that are contradictory to both be right in order for it to work. Uh, a colleague of mine, Jake Hebert, pointed that out, wrote some papers on it. It's a, a devastating refutation of the Milankovitch, and most of the global warming uh, hype is based on the Milankovitch, as well as a lot of the different dating techniques. You've heard about um, ice cores and things like that, allegedly proving the millions of years. They all calibrate those to the Milankovitch, though, which has now been refuted. So, uh, yeah, it's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of hype there, but we have a promise from God there's not going to have catastrophic global warming. There's no scientific evidence for catastrophic global warming or global cooling. There is evidence that you have these mild and natural uh, variations in climate. That's what we'd expect as part of uh, the cycle that God built into nature. But God has built a very robust earth, and it's, you can't break it as easily as, as people think they can. We got through all the questions in a timely manner. Give Jason a round of applause and your thanks for doing this. All right, just a couple of uh, announcements here before I will close in prayer. Number one, we do have leftover food supplies that are back here on this table. Um, we would love to sell those to you for what we paid for them. So if you want to go back and pick up some chips or some tomatoes or onions or dressing or salsa or any of that stuff and you want to take home some of that meat, uh, go back there and chat with the ladies and, and dicker with them for whatever seems reasonable. Um, that's available. Um, number two... This is, for those of you who may not know, this is, uh, the conferences like this are something that we as a church are hoping to do twice a year, once in May and once in October. This next October, we have coming here uh, Scott Klusendorf, who runs the Pro-Life Training Institute. Scott is the premier pro-life apologist in the world today. He's a fantastic presenter. You will be blessed uh, immensely by what he is going to present. He, Scott deals with not just the pro-life issue, answering the arguments for abortion, 
but also communicating the gospel in dealing with the abortion issue to those who have had an abortion or are affected by abortion or are considering abortion. And then Scott deals also with edge-of-life issues, so he's going to address what are the morals and ethics of beginning-of-life issues, cloning, stem cell research, in vitro fertilization, what are, how should Christians view these things, uh, when does life begin, etc. And then he deals with the end-of-life issues, euthanasia, and when is it okay to pull the plug, when is, it, is, is pulling the plug the same thing as euthanasia, when do we intervene to save somebody's life, and when is it appropriate to let them die. Uh, living trusts and wills and all of that stuff, those are ethical issues that as Christians we have to work through because if you haven't already, you will someday have to make decisions regarding end-of-life issues for a loved one. And having the moral framework and the Christian worldview in place for you to be able to work ethically through those issues is very helpful, and that is what Scott's expertise is. So that will be October, I think it's 17th and 18th of this year. We'll have registration open on our website in July. And since you are registered for this conference, you'll get an email announcing when that registration will be uh, is open, and you'll have a chance to go to the website and register. And there'll be an early bird price and all of that. We're going to basically have kind of the same format we have here a Friday night and all day Saturday. That's going to continue into the foreseeable future. And uh, then we'll change a few of the smaller details, like what we have for lunch and things. Uh, speaking of that, would you please give a round of applause to all of the ladies who took care of the kids and did our, our meals. And did our meals, and I want to recognize uh, many of them stayed in the kitchen and were in and out for various parts of the sessions, as well as the sound and video guys who helped make this work, as well as the security men who are sitting amongst you, keeping us safe and sometimes have to miss sessions. There was a lot that went into this, and we're very grateful for all that you did, many of you behind the scenes. Um, I think that that is it. There seems to be one more announcement that I was going to make. Oh. Uh, yeah, for those of you who are part of Kootenai Community Church, Andrew Rappaport will be doing in Sunday school tomorrow morning the book of Leviticus in one hour. And then he is going to do, I mean, that's, that's a different pace than what you're used to in Sunday morning worship service, right? <clears throat> and then he's going to be preaching on uh, the book of James and faith, the relationship between faith and works during the message. And then after the session, uh, after Sunday worship service, he's going to be meeting in the room over here with those of you interested in doing street evangelism and passing out tracts to equip you and, and uh, kind of get you started in that ministry in some way. So that is happening tomorrow. Next May, this is what I was going to mention, we have Scott Klusendorf coming in October. Next May, a year from now, not on Lost in the 50s weekend. That was a mistake because I don't care about cars, so it wasn't even on my radar to schedule around that, and I apologize for that. So it won't be Lost in the 50s weekend. But next May, the end of May, we have Paul Taylor coming from the Mount St. Helens Creation Center. Jason knows Paul, has worked with Paul, met Paul. Um, and next year in May is the 40th anniversary of the eruption of Mount St. Helens, and he is going to be coming and doing creation apologetics from a, the perspective of one who knows the Mount St. Helens event, and it will be basically a little more than a week after the 40th anniversary of the eruption of Mount St. Helens. So that's what we have on the, on the docket for the next year. Thank you again to Jason. Give him a round of applause, everyone. Thank you very much. Much appreciated. Okay.